So hello everyone, welcome back to the Neurology Exam Prep Podcast. Today we will be discussing the neurologic complications of more systemic rheumatologic disease. And today we are lucky enough to be joined by Dr. Ariel Leflin, one of our current neuroimmunology fellows here at Yale, who also has an interest in medical education, so we're really happy to have her on today. How are you doing? I'm well, Aaron. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, we are very happy to have you here. We have a bit to cover today. It's a bit of a broad subject in general, and we are going to narrow down and pinpoint a few of the major rheumatologic diseases and their corresponding neurologic complications. So I think our plan for today will be discussing some of the neurologic complications of lupus, Sjogren's, rheumatoid arthritis, and of course, one of the great mimickers, sarcoid, which we, we must discuss. And then maybe towards the end, we'll throw out some extra stuff regarding Bichette's IgG4-related disease and some of the effects of TNF-alpha inhibitors, just to kind of round things out. I will just, as a note, say that for each of these processes, mostly we'll be focusing on kind of the complications and diagnostics, with maybe a less kind of focus on the treatments. Yeah, I think that's a good plan. We don't have a lot of data unfortunately, to support a lot of the treatment decisions we make. So I think we could stick to just the clinical information today. I would like to acknowledge some really helpful articles that I used to aid this discussion, including several continuum articles from a few recent issues. The core references will be included in the show notes. Well, that sounds like a plan to me. And perhaps the one that we'll start with, probably one that comes up frequently in many a differentials, just given its wide variety of presentations, will be lupus. So do you think you could tell us a little bit just kind of on the background of lupus and what it is systemically before we delve into the neurologic findings? So lupus is a chronic multisystemic autoimmune disease. It can affect almost any organ system. The cause is not known, and its development, like many autoimmune conditions, is likely related to a combination of genetic and environmental factors. It's much more common in women. And patients present with variable clinical features, including constitutional symptoms, arthritis and arthralgias mucocutaneous lesions, such as oral or nasal ulcers, or the classic malar rash, as well as nephritis and cardiac disease, such as pericarditis or Lyman Sachs endocarditis. And of course, there are also neuropsychiatric manifestations, which is what we're going to talk about. Fantastic. And we'll definitely delve into those. I'm sure there's diagnostic criteria out there. And I know when we do a lot of our like rheumatologic screens, for lack of a better way of phrasing it, on some of our inpatients in neurology, are there any like antibodies or testing that we particularly look for in these patients? So the diagnosis of lupus is based upon clinical presentation and supportive serologic studies. There are several more formal diagnostic criteria as well that require patients satisfy a number of clinical, laboratory, or histopathologic criteria. But I think those are beyond our scope here. The main serologic marker in lupus is ANA, or anti-nuclear antibody, which is positive in virtually all patients with lupus at some point in their disease course, and it essentially serves as an entry point into diagnosing the disease. Once someone is found to have a positive ANA, other antibodies should also be tested for, including anti-double-stranded DNA antibody and anti-Smith antibody, which are highly specific for lupus. On that note, it's really important to recognize that ANA is not specific, and the titer and not just a positive result is really important to consider. I always joke that you sneeze and you get an ANA, right? And that's just to say that low titer ANAs are common, not specific, and not diagnostic. And when we interpret any antibody result, 
it always should be interpreted within the clinical context of the patient. And one last thing to know about antibodies and lupus is that we can use some of these as a measure of disease activity. Double-stranded DNA and complement levels, along with a urinalysis to check for protein, are what we refer to as disease activity labs. You don't need to repeat an ANA at any point, but you would repeat these labs and look at the urine protein to creatinine ratio if there's concern that the patient is having a flare and you want to compare those to prior levels. Oh, fantastic. Thank you for those clarifications. Antibody testing is obviously something we're not unaware of or infrequently faced with as um, a neuroimmunologist. So especially within restaurant rheumatologic conditions, it's important to know when to be concerned about a level of titer and also which ones are most helpful for activity. So I appreciate you going into that. Now, I think going through the neurologic presentations, we're going to take a step back and kind of bundle them. So we're going to talk maybe a little bit about some of the central neurologic syndromes we can see, and then some of the peripheral neurologic syndromes we can see. Um, to start with, perhaps we can discuss the, I would say the frequency of neuropsychiatric events in lupus is estimated to range between 13 and 21%, but all these numbers vary based on the study that you read. And I'll just mention before we get into these that the nomenclature has changed over the years. Currently, neurologic involvement in lupus is termed neuropsychiatric lupus, and terms like lupus cerebritis have fallen out of favor and are no longer used. And when we talk about central nervous system, manifestations, which I think like you just mentioned, are more common in lupus than peripheral nervous system manifestations. It's often difficult to know whether or not these manifestations are directly related to the lupus or something else that's going on. And so going back to those disease activity labs, we talked about sometimes those can be helpful in raising your clinical suspicion in these cases. And in general, headaches and mood disorders are probably the most common central nervous system manifestations. Though again, it's unclear if these are directly related to lupus and neither are associated with disease activity. And the frequency of headaches in lupus patients is actually not significantly higher than that in the general population. And so you should investigate headache in lupus just as you would in any other patient with MRI and MRV in the appropriate clinical context. And so now strokes, the data on strokes estimates that they occur in approximately 5 to 18% of lupus patients, but some studies report the prevalence of cerebrovascular disease in lupus patients is up to 60% even. Lupus is an independent risk factor for stroke, but several other factors also contribute to risk in this population. So you have your traditional risk factors for small vessel disease, as well as high activity scores, history of prior neuropsychiatric events, and antiphospholipid antibodies. You may also see embolic infarcts in these patients from Lidman-Sachs endocarditis or morantic non-infectious endocarditis or paradoxical emboli from a peripheral venous clot. And atherosclerosis is also accelerated in lupus patients, possibly related to the increased prevalence of these other risk factors, but also likely related just to the presence of chronic systemic inflammation. Lupus vasculitis is rare, so I would consider other causes of stroke prior to saying ischemic events in lupus are related to lupus vasculitis. Yeah, so what it sounds like there is essentially pretty much any of the buckets that we think about for the TOAST criteria, we really could find a reason, at least in our lupus patients, to have them having increased risk. But maybe one thing I wanted to touch on a little bit more would be uh, APS or antiphospholipid syndrome. Yeah, absolutely. And this goes to say that in a lot of these conditions that we're going to talk about today, going back to your basics and doing the same workup that you would do in other patients with these presentations is really important. 
In terms of antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, this is a really important cause of acquired hypercoagulability for our listeners to be aware of, and it can occur independently or in the context of autoimmune diseases such as lupus. It's based on lab criteria. So for diagnosis, you need positive lupus anticoagulant, anticardiolipin, IgG or IgM in high titers, and anti-beta-2 glycoprotein-1 IgG or IgM in high titer. And the results need to be positive on two occasions, at least 12 weeks apart, due to interestingly some seasonal variability in levels, and that levels can be transiently positive. And lupus anticoagulant can be affected by anticoagulation. So that's just something to be aware of when you order these tests. Oh, thank you for touching on those. I feel like that's another one we've discussed in our Stroke in the Young podcast as well in the past. And it's definitely a very good reminder of a syndrome that we is definitely worth checking, particularly in these more immunosensitive patients. So I think that's a pretty good overlap of stroke. Do you think we can head in and talk maybe about the seizure risk in the lupus patient population? Definitely. So again, varying data on prevalence of seizures in lupus patients, studies estimate anywhere from 4 to 5% to 10 to 20% of patients with lupus will experience seizures. Seizures can be focal or generalized. And usually they occur early in the disease and are associated with higher disease activity, a history of psychosis, antiphospholipid antibodies, or anti-SMITH antibodies. And seizures that occur late in the disease course, so we're talking 10 to 15 years or later after diagnosis, are usually related to other factors such as uremia and less likely to be directly related to the lupus. Oftentimes, seizures in lupus are also just single episodes, and so they may not require long-term anti-seizure medication. Perhaps one of the more interesting ones, and maybe one that's really hard for me to wrap my head around in terms of these central neurologic syndromes of lupus, is this kind of acute confusional state or psychosis. Do you think you could provide maybe what clarity we, we do know about this condition? So cognitive dysfunction is very commonly reported in lupus patients. And this can range from relatively mild so-called brain fog to more severe alterations in mental status and even coma. Lupus psychosis is rare. It's seen in about 1.5% of patients, usually occurs early in the disease course, and typically is monophasic. And it's often characterized by visual hallucinations. And I would say it's important to try to differentiate this when it occurs from steroid-induced psychosis. A lot of these patients are also going to be on steroids. And it seems like maybe steroid-induced psychosis maybe manifests more with auditory hallucinations. So maybe that could be one way to help differentiate. But often, again, like we said before, it comes back to going back to basics, taking a careful history, doing a thorough exam, and evaluating for your other typical causes of altered mental status as well. In these cases, an MRI brain is often obtained, and you may see inflammatory T2 flare hyperintensities involving the white matter, sometimes also the gray matter as well, that may contrast enhance or have diffusion restriction. And this is, again, typically associated with elevated markers of disease activity. So it's one way to help you determine whether this is related to lupus or maybe something else. All right. So definitely a good thing to go back and look about all of the possible provoking factors in these patients, particularly ones who likely have complex medical needs as well. And maybe a good tie-in with some of these imaging findings we can see in patients with lupus. Perhaps we can talk about maybe the overlap that we see with a posterior predominant kind of process or press. Presses can be really difficult to diagnose in lupus patients, right? Because a lot of those imaging features can overlap and 
annoyingly right press needs to be neither posterior nor reversible sometimes. So that can make diagnosis really challenging. But press is another important cause of altered mental status in this patient population. And renal disease is a particularly important risk factor in, for press in these patients due to the resultant hypertension. Press may also be related to the immunosuppressive agents that are used to treat lupus. So that's another really important consideration. It's not clear that lupus itself causes press, though there is an association between press and lupus as well as press and other autoimmune diseases. But definitely important to consider whether the patient has nephritis and hypertension and what medications they're on, because those are all really important risk factors. Yeah, I've definitely seen at least I think in my a younger patient uh, who recently diagnosed and they ended up having press as well and it was in the setting of terrible renal disease and uncontrolled hypertension so definitely a bit of overlap there and then maybe the last thing we'll touch on at least in terms of the central neurologic syndromes is myelitis or transverse myelitis in these patients so moving down to the spinal cord so myelitis in lupus patients occurs in about 1% of patients. It can occur as the presenting manifestation or can occur later in the disease course. And it may be associated with disease activity, but it can also occur with patients who have well-controlled disease. Predominant gray matter involvement, such as cases that are going to present with flaccid paralysis, are typically associated with higher disease activity, double-stranded DNA antibodies, and antiphospholipid antibodies. In contrast, Myelitis with predominant white matter involvement is typically associated or has been associated with aquaporin-4 seropositivity. And when myelitis occurs in lupus, you always want to consider concurrent MS and NMO spectrum disorder. But in contrast to Sjogren's, which we're going to talk about a little bit later, there's less overlap actually between lupus and NMO than between Sjogren's and NMO. And before moving on to the peripheral nervous system manifestations, I'll just comment that other demyelinating lesions can also occur in association with lupus, including optic neuritis. And again, comorbid MS or neuromyelitis optica should be considered. And LP is often nonspecific, can show mild pleocytosis, and oligoclonal bands are seen both in primary demyelinating disorders and lupus. So again, these diagnoses can be really tricky to make. I imagine a lot of this comes down to some careful discussions with rheumatology, as well as kind of seeing how these patients play out longitudinally. I Definitely. And a multi-system approach is, is really important. So I think those were the big five that we wanted to talk about, at least in terms of central processes. Let's touch on a little bit of the peripheral neurologic syndromes. Obviously, there's a wide variety, so we'll do our best to kind of keep it as tidy as we can. So what do we generally see in the peripheral nervous system for our lupus patients? So the peripheral syndromes are probably not as high yield and not included in the nomenclature for lupus neuropsychiatric symptoms. So I'll just comment briefly on this. Most frequently, this is going to manifest as a sensory or sensory motor axonal polyneuropathy that may be asymmetric. Small fiber neuropathy may also occur, but varied clinical presentations, including demyelinating neuropathies and plexopathies are also reported. Do we ever see the optic nerve involved in our lupus patients? Yes. Yeah, so definitely can see, you know, you can see optic neuritis, like we mentioned in, you know, the case of demyelinating type lesions, and you can definitely see cranial neuropathies in general occur in lupus patients as well. And that can involve the optic nerve. Fantastic. Thank you for that. And then maybe the last thing, probably a little bit lower yield, but does come up 
maybe not infrequently on maybe some more obscure minutia that testing is known for. But are there any movement disorders or movement abnormalities that can occur with our lupus patients? Chorea is a rare manifestation of neuropsychiatric lupus. Many of these patients have antiphospholipid syndrome and or infarcts in the basal ganglia. So MRI should be obtained in these patients to look for that. Other movement disorders like Parkinsonism have also been reported in lupus patients, but are even more rare. Gotcha. So maybe something to put in the back of the head, at least when we think about these patients clinically. So I know that was a lot to cover for one disease, but would you be able to summarize a little bit of some of the key points and takeaways for neuropsychiatric lupus? Sure. So clinical manifestations of neuropsychiatric lupus are wide ranging, but the key ones to know about are stroke, particularly in the setting of antiphospholipid syndrome, psychosis, which should be differentiated from steroid-induced psychosis, and PRESS, which can be related to hypertension or immunosuppressive agents. And when evaluating neuropsychiatric lupus, it is helpful to measure disease activity labs, and other testing is typically nonspecific. Awesome. I think that was a wonderful summary, and I appreciate you going through that so systematically. Moving forward, we're going to head on and talk about Sjogren's disease, which one of my co-residents is absolutely just fascinated by. It's his favorite neurologic kind of overlap. And yet he isn't doing neuroimmunology. I feel rather betrayed when I talk to him about it. (laughs) Well, we definitely should try to convince him otherwise. I know. It's very, very difficult work we try to do. (laughs) So what is Sjogren's syndrome? And what's its kind of prevalence more, you know, broadly speaking? So Sjogren's is a chronic autoimmune inflammatory disorder characterized by diminished lacrimal and salivary gland function due to lymphocytic infiltration of exocrine glands. And this results in sicka symptoms, such as dry eyes and dry mouth. The prevalence is estimated at 43 per 100,000 people. And like lupus, there's also some antibodies associated here too, right? Yes. In this case, you want to look for anti-RO, also known as anti-SSA antibodies, and or anti-LA, also known as anti-SSB antibodies. And when it comes to the neurologic presentations, it's kind of almost, I wouldn't say the inverse necessarily, but we see a lot of more peripheral syndromes in Sjogren's, is that right? Yes. In contrast to lupus, Sjogren's more commonly affects the peripheral nervous system. So maybe we could start there. In Sjogren's syndrome, sensory axonal neuropathies are the predominant type, and they're typically length-dependent. Small fiber neuropathy may also occur, tends to present earlier in the disease course, and may have associated autonomic dysfunction. Sjogren's is also associated, maybe a little bit more uniquely, with a sensory neuropathy, right? So neuropathy caused by damage to the dorsal root ganglia and also trigeminal ganglia, which results in a sensory ataxic neuropathy that is overall rare, but when it occurs can be progressive and very disabling. It presents with variable, multifocal, and asymmetric sensory symptoms, gait instability, loss of proprioception, and sensory ataxia. Patients may have pseudoathetosis due to loss of their proprioception, and so this may sometimes be mistaken initially for a movement disorder rather than a neuropathy. And the neuropathy is non-length dependent, and if pathology were to be obtained, you would see a lymphocytic infiltrate in the dorsal root ganglia, but doing this type of biopsy is not typically recommended. Yeah, I would imagine that would be a little bit difficult as somebody with a pretty non-surgical background, to say the least. But it's definitely an interesting one to keep keep in mind, especially regarding that somewhat non-length dependent and 
they definitely can speak to some of the disabling effects of these sensory ataxias, having seen them in some other conditions as well. It, are there any other peripheral neurologic symptoms we should be aware of? Do we ever see uh, more cranial nerve involvement or anything along those lines, or is it mostly in the body? You can also get focal neuropathies. Mononeuritis multiplex and mononeuropathies are uncommon but can occur, usually in the setting of active systemic disease. Polyradiculopathies can also occur. And cranial neuropathies have been reported primarily involving the trigeminal nerve. And I would say in general, if the trigeminal nerve is involved, that should raise your suspicion for Sjogren's. Maybe moving on to the central nervous system. I know this may be of, of particular interest to you as a neuroimmunologist, but if I'm remembering correctly, there's kind of a bit of an MS mimicking presentation for Sjogren's at times. Is that right? Yes. So... A recurrent demyelinating disorder can occur affecting the brain or the spinal cord, and there is overlap with seropositive NMO spectrum disorder, which we kind of alluded to earlier, particularly in cases of myelitis. There's less frequent overlap with multiple sclerosis, but it can occur. And when you see a case of transverse myelitis, I would argue that you should always order SSA and SSB antibodies because if those are present, that's predictive of recurrence after that initial episode of myelitis. You can also see optic neuritis in Sjogren's as well. Particularly in our myelitis patients, I know just it's high value real estate. So any chance that we have to prevent recurrence is really key. I think that about wraps up the major points we wanted to discuss with Sjogren's. So really focusing on some of these peripheral syndromes, the sensory ataxia that can develop in ganglionitis, and then it's also relationship with these recurrent multifocal events in NMO. And maybe before we move on, we could just talk <laughs> a little bit about diagnostics a little further in Sjogren's. So like with lupus, again, if you were to do an LP in these patients, your CSF findings are going to be nonspecific. You're typically going to see a mild lymphocytic pleocytosis and mildly elevated protein. But as with other autoimmune conditions, it's helpful sometimes to have this information to establish an inflammatory component and to evaluate for other diagnoses that may be on your differential, like infection or neoplasm. And in patients with demyelinating lesions, you want to obtain, of course, an MRI with and without contrast, as well as look for those aquaporin-4 antibodies for NMO overlap. And then biopsy of the lacrimal duct or salivary gland may also be very helpful. And I guess similar to our maybe prior discussions we've had in this podcast, for NMO, we'd be sending the serum, right? Yes, great point. You always want to send the serum. It's really not super sensitive in the CSF, and I wouldn't recommend tapping patients just to, to obtain aquaporin for antibodies. Always send the serum test. Good. Always want to verbally say it every chance I get. <laughs> So I think that about wraps up Sjogren's. If it's okay, let's move on to rheumatoid arthritis, which has some interesting associations with neurology and perhaps sometimes a little bit more mechanical than we usually think about. Yeah, so rheumatoid arthritis, or RA, is yet another chronic systemic autoimmune inflammatory disorder of unknown etiology that primarily involves the synovial joints. And relevant antibodies here include rheumatoid factor, or RF, and anti-citrullinated peptide protein antibody, anti-CCP. Anti-CCP is more specific than rheumatoid factor is for rheumatoid arthritis, but RF may be positive potentially a little earlier in the disease course on occasion. Really high titers of anti-CCP might suggest longstanding disease as well. And you'll often see 
elevated inflammatory markers like ESR and CRP, along with evidence of inflammation on exam and x-rays if the disease is active. Gotcha. It's definitely, thank you for providing some of those details with the antibodies. It's really, it's really helpful for me, especially as somebody who invariably, when we get consulted, somebody has ordered a ton of lab work and then we're left with (laughs) trying to interpret. So those are very helpful. Moving through some of the neurologic presentations of it, for some reason, I have very vivid memories while studying for exams in the past of every RA patient in a question sim is recently getting intubated for some sort of outpatient procedure and something devastating happens. Could you probably elaborate a little bit on what they're getting at with invariably this somewhat commonly asked test question? This is really, really common on the test. Uh, The test loves to ask about the cervical joint injuries that occur in rheumatoid arthritis, in particular with subluxation. So cervical joint injury in rheumatoid arthritis results from extension of inflammation from adjacent joints into the vertebral area, causing destruction of those joints, cartilage, ligaments, and tendons. The joint destruction subsequently leads to chronic cervical instability from vertebral malalignment or subluxation. And when there isn't enough space for the brainstem, spinal cord, or the nerve roots due to the subluxation or due to panis formation posterior to the odontoid, you get neurologic symptoms. And this is typically associated with longer disease duration and increased disease activity. So what are the ways in which this can happen? Let's just review our anatomy really quickly. So remember that C1 or the atlas sits on the axis, which is C2. And remember that C2 can be identified by the odontoid process, aka the dens. So atlantoaxial or atlantooxibo subluxation involves that C1, the atlas, moving in some direction relative to C2 that it's not supposed to move. And so C1 can move anteriorly, posteriorly, vertically, laterally, or rotationally relative to C2. And when you have that abnormal movement, different symptoms can occur depending on the direction that the atlas moved in. Subaxial disease is when you're below the axis. So this involves one or more levels between C3 and C7, where one vertebral body moves horizontally relative to another, causing either compression of the cord, a nerve root, or both. And as you mentioned, the classic situation on board exams for cervical subluxation in RA is when an RA patient gets intubated, resulting in hyperextension of the neck and subsequent subluxation. Super common on train in training examinations for there to be a picture of an RA patient with invasion of the cervical vertebrae by panis. So I'd really encourage our listeners to become familiar with what that looks like on MRI and to know that association with rheumatoid arthritis. And so you want to try to catch these patients ahead of time, right? You want to try to know when they're going to go for a procedure so that you can screen them for this and work with your anesthesiologist to prevent any injury. Oh, thank you for that wonderful anatomy review too. I know I have, especially in the early stages of my PGY career, had let a lot of my fundamental, especially bony anatomy slip. So I think that'll be a helpful reminder for a lot of our listeners. Outside of the cervical disease, which obviously we discussed probably most commonly, and some of the myelopathic features and radicular features that can develop based on location, perhaps we could talk a little bit about something more uncommon. And that would be something like rheumatoid meningitis. So rheumatoid meningitis is a bit of a controversial diagnosis. And not everyone is convinced that it's necessarily a real association with rheumatoid arthritis. That being said, it's a rare manifestation of the disease. 
often seen later in the disease course and may present in the absence of active systemic disease. It's going to present like other forms of meningitis, altered mental status, headache, seizure, and rarely infarcts in the cases that are accompanied by cerebral vasculitis. But other causes need to be excluded, including infection, other autoimmune or inflammatory disorders, systemic vasculitides, and IgG4-related disease too is typically on your differential in these cases. And you would work it up again, just like any other process that presents like this. So you're often going to get a lumbar puncture, which typically shows a lymphocytic pleocytosis and elevated protein, and then an MRI brain with and without contrast, which will show meningeal enhancement. And if you see the presence of rheumatoid nodules, particularly on meningeal biopsy, which is sometimes needed in these cases, that helps support a diagnosis. So when it comes to the MRI finding for the entity that is rheumatoid meningitis, if it truly is, is there any specific relationship or more common entity between like a pachymeningeal or leptomeningeal involvement, or can it be both? I think both can be involved with RA meningitis. You might see leptomeningeal or pachymeningeal involvement. Gotcha. I know we'll talk a little bit more about some of that, particularly the pachymeningeal, a little bit later with IgG4-related disease. Moving on with the rheumatoid arthritis, we mentioned it briefly when it came to the meningitic aspect, um, particularly in its relation to stroke. And mentioning a bit about a vasculitic process as well. Do we do we generally see that frequently or infrequently with our rheumatoid arthritis patients? Rheumatoid vasculitis can occur in patients with long-standing severe rheumatoid arthritis. And typically, right, it's going to involve inflammation of the blood vessel wall, but it's overall rare. It occurs in less than 1% of RA patients. Got it. And is it going to be more peripheral, central, or is it kind of a, a catch-all? It's probably going to affect the peripheral peripheral nervous system much more commonly than it's going to affect the central nervous system. Typically affects medium or small blood vessels and can affect vessels of the skin, fingers, toes, nerves, eyes, heart. So you might often see this manifest as a rash, cutaneous ulcers, or neuropathy. Gotcha. So definitely a very systemic process as are most of the complaints we've talked to through (laughs) pretty much every disease on this list. Is there anything else you wanted to cover for rheumatoid arthritis? I guess I'll just mention a little bit more detail about those peripheral nervous system involvements. So vasculitic neuropathy will result from infarction of those individual peripheral nerves. And most people are going to develop a sensory neuropathy related to that. A portion of patients might have a mixed sensory motor neuropathy or a mononeuritis multiplex type presentation. But the most common type of neuropathy in RA is actually an entrapment neuropathy. So don't forget sort of the simple things. Those are the most common. And it's also important to think about demyelinating neuropathies too in these patients because this can occur with TNF-alpha inhibitors, which is what is commonly used to treat patients with RA. And that can also be associated with central demyelination as well. And I think we'll talk about that a little bit more too towards the end of this. Well, if that's the case, I think those were the big three we wanted to talk about, the cervical disease, meningeal disease, and the vasculitic involvement with rheumatoid arthritis. Do you think it's okay to move on to sarcoid, which is everyone's favorite mimicker, at least in neuro, I'd imagine? Yes, definitely. And this is my favorite diagnosis that we're going to talk about in contrast to your friend who loves Sjogren's. I love sarcoid. So I'm definitely ready to talk about it. (laughs) Fantastic. All right. So we can just start talking about the general pathophys of sarcoid. Sarcoidosis is, again, a multi-system disease of unknown etiology. That's a recurring theme here. It's histopathologically characterized by non-caseating granulomas. 
This is in contrast to mycobacterial infections, which typically cause caseating or necrotizing granulomas. So one more time, non-caseating, non-necrotizing granulomas are what you're going to see in sarcoidosis. Necrotizing or caseating granulomas is what you typically see with infection. There's likely a genetic predisposition and environmental risk factors that contribute. The likely mechanism is postulated to be an exaggerated immune response to an antigen, though this antigen hasn't been identified. And how do we generally see this kind of systemically present? What would be tips off in a question stem or even clinically that may raise your red flags towards a possible sarcoid diagnosis? So as you mentioned, sarcoid can affect virtually any organ system and gets that name as the great miniker from that. And so sometimes it can be really difficult. But there are a few specific presentations of sarcoidosis that when patients present in this way, these presentations are felt to be sufficiently diagnostic of the disease. The first of those is Laughrin syndrome, which is characterized by the triad of hyalur adenopathy, acute arthritis, and erythema nodosum. It's generally an uncommon presentation of sarcoid and typically self-limiting when it occurs. The second is lupus perneo, which is characterized by violaceous or erythematous indurated infiltrative plaques primarily distributed on the central face, usually at the alar rim, nasal tip, and on the cheeks. And these can cause significant destruction and disfigurement and are often less responsive to treatment. It's also associated with an increased risk for pulmonary involvement, as well as lytic or cystic bone lesions. And the last of these specific presentations is Herefort syndrome, also known as uveoparotid fever. And this is the combination of anterior uveitis, parotid gland enlargement, facial nerve palsy due to compression by the parotid gland, and fever. And again, it's another uncommon presentation of sarcoidosis. Yeah, and I would encourage our listener for maybe a few things we talk about here. There may be some Googling and pictures that may be helpful. So looking at some of these skin lesions like erythema nodosum and lupus perneo would probably be a little bit high yield. You'll never know what type of picture they'll throw at you. In terms of the neurologic presentations, though, as we've kind of alluded to, it can really be anywhere along the neuroaxis. Are there specific ones that you want to focus on today? Yes. So I think we could maybe start by talking about the central nervous system in this case, because that's going to be the more common way sarcoid involves the nervous system. And I like to think of the different presentations of neurosarcoidosis, the different forms as encephalitic, myelitic, or meningeal. And patients can have a combination of these. So let's start with the meningeal forms, the meningitic forms. So this can present as cranial neuropathies due to invasion of the nerve from involvement of the meninges around the nerve. But you can also have granulomatous infiltration of the cranial nerve nucleus or the fascicle or involvement of the end organ itself. The most common presentation is going to be a cranial nerve 7 palsy presenting as a lower motor neuron pattern, facial droop. And also hearing loss due to cranial nerve 8 involvement is also pretty common. And then optic neuropathy presenting with subacute vision loss and retrobulbar pain can also be seen. In general, sarcoid should always be under differential for a patient presenting with multiple cranial neuropathies. Meningeal disease otherwise typically presents as a subacute lymphocytic meningitis with headache, maybe nuchal rigidity, possibly fever, and leptomeningeal involvement is typical with a predilection for the skull base, but pachymeningitis can also occur. And an important complication of meningeal involvement is hydrocephalus, 
which is a common reason for patients to acutely present to care and an important cause of complications and morbidity in these patients. In terms of parenchymal or encephalitic disease, this can have a variety of manifestations. We always say sarcoid could do whatever it wants. And the presentation is based on location of the lesions. So sarcoid typically likes to seed a particular location and then propagate to other locations from there. And there's a predilection for hypothalamic and pituitary involvement that can manifest as various neuroendocrine disorders. So think about sarcoid and patients presenting with neuroendocrine abnormalities or with hypopituitarism, hyperphagia, hypersomnolence, symptoms such as that. And then finally, the myelitic forms are usually due to subpeal intramedullary lesions within the cord. And disease in the spinal cord is usually very disabling in these patients. The thoracic spine is most commonly involved, followed by the cervical region, and lesions may be longitudinally extensive, mimicking disorders like NMO, so at least three vertebral levels long. So sometimes, again, these can be difficult to differentiate, but looking at that sub-peel location can sometimes clue you in that this is circled. In terms of how they appear then in terms of diagnostic workup, because obviously sarcoid will be on that list, how do we actually get to that diagnosis? Are there are there features maybe on MRI that clue you in? There are a couple of characteristic findings on imaging. In the brain, you want to look for nodular enhancement. That might be suggestive of sarcoidosis. In the spinal cord, you want to look for, again, I'm going to say like 100 times, subpeal lesions or enhancement. On axial images, you might see something called the trident sign where there's a trident appearance of contrast enhancement, where you have extension from the dorsal subpeal surface circumferentially bilaterally around the cord with a central spoke extending into the midline of the cord that has the appearance of a trident. And coexisting meningeal involvement may also clue you in that this is sarcoid. Gotcha. I know I've definitely seen the trident sign a few times in some varying test books and banks, but I have not had the pleasure of seeing that on an actual MRI yet. I'm sure that's maybe that's what my fellowship's for, following in your footsteps here. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. You will see it one day. (laughs) And then in terms of other diagnostics, how do we go about really narrowing down to this diagnosis? Is there anything else that we can do? When you're suspicious for sarcoidosis, you do want to obtain systemic imaging, including CT chest with contrast. The main thing you're often looking for there is Hyler adenopathy. And you might also be able to find potential biopsy targets on a CT. FTG-PET can also be helpful in detecting extrapulmonary sarcoidosis and identifying other targets for biopsy. And you can also look for FTG uptake in the cord in the setting of myelitis as well to help support a neurosarcoid diagnosis. Is there anything on CSF that we can look at? As is another recurring theme today, the CSF findings are generally not specific for sarcoid, but again, LP can help evaluate for other etiologies such as infection and neoplasm. There is one finding that may be more specific for sarcoid, though it's not a slam dunk, and that's IL-2 receptor levels. So that's something you can look for in the CSF. Like other inflammatory disorders, you're otherwise going to see a lymphocytic pleocytosis and elevated protein. Glucose may be low in sarcoid, but if you have a significantly low glucose, less than 30, you should consider infection, right? Something that this mimics is infections like TB, fungal infections, and you want to make sure you rule those out. About a quarter of patients will have positive oligoclonal bands. So again, another somewhat nonspecific finding. And you may see an elevated opening pressure. 
I do want to make a plug that CSF ACE is controversial. It has low specificity, it has low sensitivity, and it's generally not recommended. But similarly, serum ACE is also a pretty poor test. It's present in 24 to 76% of patients. There's a high false positive rate. It's not sensitive enough to rule out the disease, and it can be seen in a variety of other conditions, including TB, neoplasms, several other conditions. Yeah, I was invariably going to ask you about ACE. So I, <laughs> I'm glad that we were able to discuss it because it is, it is a test that uh, our program director, Dr. Moeller, has wagged his finger at several times over the course of these last few years. <laughs> Definitely, Elisa CSF ACE. When I see that, can't help but think, why did they order it? <laughs> <laughs> Understandably. And just to be clear, is there any way that we can prove definitive neurosarcoid? All of these tests that we just talked about can help support the diagnosis of neurosarcoidosis. But ultimately, to confirm the diagnosis, you need to demonstrate non-caseating granulomas, again, that pathologic hallmark of the disease, in affected neural tissue. The diagnostic criteria divide the diagnosis of neurosarcoidosis into definite, probable, and possible neurosarcoidosis. Definite neurosarcoidosis, again, requires pathologic evidence of sarcoid in the CNS or the peripheral nervous system if that's what's involved. If you don't have biopsy proof of involvement in the nervous system, but you can biopsy an extraneural site, such as a hilar lymph node or another involved site, then you can diagnose probable neurosarcoidosis. If you do not have any pathologic confirmation of granulomatous disease, you can diagnose possible neurosarcoidosis. So just to summarize that once more, definite neurosarcoid requires pathologic evidence in the nervous system, Probable neurosarcoid has pathologic evidence elsewhere in the body, but not in the nervous system. And possible neurosarcoid is when you do not have any pathologic evidence. So you really want to try to get a biopsy when you can. And all of this, of course, as with any other diagnosis, requires rigorous exclusion of other causes like we've already sort of talked about, and in particular, infection and malignancy. Oh, thank you for that. It was really a wonderful summary of sarcoid, which can definitely be a bit of a bear. (laughs) <laughs> to kind of narrow down on. Is there anything else you wanted to cover for this one? I think those were the main points. You know, as I mentioned, there isn't a ton of peripheral nervous system involvement in neurosarcoid, though it can occur. And it's not clear in every case that peripheral neuropathy, when it occurs in sarcoid patients, is directly related to the sarcoid and may just be related to the presence of chronic systemic inflammation. And so maybe sort of a parasarcoid phenomenon, if you will. But maybe we can just sort of quickly summarize the high-yield points here once more. So I think the high-yield points to know about neurosarcoidosis is that this is a diagnosis you should think about in patients presenting with multiple cranial neuropathies, particularly facial nerve palsies, basilar meningitis, hypopituitarism, or signs of hypothalamic dysfunction. ACE levels are not very helpful. And look for nodular or subpeel enhancement on imaging, and you always want to try to biopsy when you can. Definitely one of my favorite disorders of the nervous system as well. So I think those were the big ones that we wanted to spend like pretty dedicated time talking about. I think we just have some some special mentions almost regarding some maybe less high yield, but definitely testable and clinically relevant pathologies as well. One of them being Bichette's, the other being IgG4 related disease, and then a brief comment on TNF-alpha inhibitor toxicity to really round it out. So if you could give me almost like an elevator pitch for Bichette's disease, what would that be? 
So Bichette's disease, yet another multisystemic inflammatory disease of unclear etiology. It's also a vasculitis. It has a unique ability to affect blood vessels of all sizes and both the arterial and venous circulation. And there's a high incidence of Bichette's in the Mediterranean along the ancient Silk Road towards Eastern Asia. And there's an increased risk associated with the HLA-B51 haplotype. Systemically, patients have multiple frequent painful oral ulcers. In addition to other systemic features, they may also have genital ulcers. Skin involvement can manifest as a pseudofilliculitis or erythema nodosum, though this is rare. Anterior or posterior uveitis retinal vasculitis, arthritis, and arterial and venous thrombosis and phlebitis are other clinical features that you might see. And classically, patients will have a positive pathogy test where they develop an erythematous papular or pustular response to local skin injury. Fantastic. And then for the neuro stuff, is there any involvement that we typically see or any patterns that are associated with it? Again, we like to say Bichette's can do what it wants, but the majority of CNS involvement presents with parenchymal involvement due to small vessel vasculitis. Most commonly, patients have a subacute progressive brainstem syndrome. And on imaging, you may see T2 hyperintensities in the brainstem that extend towards the thalamus. About 20% of neurobichette's patients may develop cerebrovenous sinus thrombosis, which interestingly tends not to coexist with parenchymal disease. You may also find aneurysms in Bichette's patients. It would be rare for this to be an isolated manifestation of the disease, but you do typically find incidental aneurysms in these patients. Myelitis is rare, but can occur. Typically occurs later in the disease course, but can also be an initial presenting manifestation and tends to be accompanied by uveitis. And you may see on axial imaging, something kind of fun called the bagel sign, <laughs> where on T2 axial images, you will see a hypo-intense core surrounded by a hyper-intense rim that looks like a bagel, so-called bagel sign. I love the bagel sign. That's my new favorite neuroradiologic sign, as far as I'm concerned. I've spent most of my life in New Jersey growing up, and then New York, and now Connecticut. So, fantastic. <laughs> so, for Bichette's. Big things, at least for neuro, going to be those brainstem to diencephalic lesions, the vascular involvement, and the spinal cord. IgG4-related disease, probably an entity that I, full disclosure, didn't know anything about until starting neurology. But perhaps you could shed some light on this somewhat atypical and interesting pathology. Yes, definitely interesting disorder, rare disorder. I think maybe I've seen it two times so far. IgG4-related disease is characterized by lymphoplasmacytic infiltrations with a predominance of IgG4-positive plasma cells, often with some degree of fibrosis. There is growing evidence that it may be autoimmune. The prevalence is unknown, thought to be more common in older males, and it can involve one or more organs, typically presents with subacute development of a mass in the affected organ, and lymphadenopathy is also common. And diagnosis can be based off of elevated IgG4 levels and biopsy is also supportive. So at least in terms of the neurologic presentations, there's really probably two big ones that we'd generally be involved for. Um, maybe one being involvement around the orbit and another the meninges. IgG4-related orbitopathy is probably one of the more common ways neurologically that IgG4 can involve the, ner the nervous system. Patients present with a orbital pseudotumor-like presentation with typically painless periorbital or eyelid swelling or proptosis 
with or without diplopia. The lacrimal gland may also be involved in addition to the extraocular muscles, and many patients have bilateral involvement. And then hypertrophic pachymeningitis is characterized by fibrosis and lymphoplasmacytic infiltration of IgG4-positive plasma cells into the dura. And typically on MRI, you're going to see smooth homogeneous enhancement of the dura. Yeah, as we've stated before, I would definitely make a strong recommendation for our listeners to maybe take a a peek at some of these radiologic features. They're usually pretty pronounced. I'm a very visual person, so I love and I'm looking at the pictures associating that with the presentation. So I agree. And is there any perhaps other presentations that we should be aware of, maybe not in detail, but just maybe some considerations otherwise for IgG4 related disease? There's a few other ways in which the nervous system can, can be affected. And arteritis can occur if there's vascular involvement, peripheral neuropathy in the form of a distal sensory motor neuropathy, mononeuritis multiplex, or length-dependent sensory neuropathy can also occur. And pituitary involvement can also occur, causing hypopituitarism. So just another possible overlap with sarcoid. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) I think the last thing we wanted to touch on then would be the TNF-alpha inhibitors. Yes, I think we would be remiss if we didn't touch on TNF-alpha inhibitor toxicity before finishing up. We didn't focus too much today on treatments, but TNF-alpha inhibitors are commonly used medications in rheumatology for a variety of conditions, including sarcoidosis and other disorders we didn't discuss today. And no neuroroom talk is complete without talking about their toxicity. As I alluded to earlier, TNF-alpha inhibitors are associated with both central and peripheral demyelinating disorders, and if given to a patient with multiple sclerosis, can lead to an increase in disease activity and worse outcomes. So this is something important to consider when you have comorbid MS and a patient with another rheumatologic disorder. You want to avoid giving TNF-alpha inhibitors to those patients. These cases typically present with an MS-like syndrome or optic neuritis or less commonly transverse myelitis, but these drugs can cause very atypical demyelinating syndromes as well. About one-third of patients fully recover. About 20% have partial recovery, and the remainder have persistent symptoms. The majority of reported cases are associated with etanercept and infliximab, And the onset of demyelinating syndromes after treatment varies widely from days to years, with median onset being somewhere in the realm of five to 17 months. So an important complication to be aware of that our listeners may run into given the increasing frequency with which these medications are used. No, I think it was a really good idea bringing this one up. It's definitely something that I haven't seen and probably don't think about enough because they definitely take care of a lot of patients along with our rheumatologic colleagues. Definitely something to keep in the back of your mind when you see these patients. Well, I think that is everything that we set out to talk about. I want to thank you so much for going through all this with me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. Of course. Hopefully you kind of demystified the topic a little bit for people. No, definitely. I think rheumatology and neurology are plagued with some similar difficulties, both clinically and from an educational standpoint, just given the variety of things you need to know about them, all these subtleties. So hopefully this provides a bit of framework for our listeners regarding lupus, Sjogren's, RA, sarcoid, a little bit of Bichette's IgG4-related disease, and even some of the TNF-alpha inhibitor toxicities. So thank you again, Dr. Leflin. No problem.